ransomware these days, as you know, is a huge problem. And there's just a story today in the Daily Mail about a massive hack of Amazon, Gmail accounts, all kinds of your most sensitive information. Do you want to just trust this stuff to big tech corporations that aren't liable to you? If they lose your data, there's a problem. It's it's too bad. You need to start taking action now yourself to protect your most sensitive information. That's why you need secure. All right. S-E-K-U-R. It's the 100% privacy and security focused instant messaging and email platform located in Switzerland. That's the country where the world's strictest data privacy laws are applied. Secure, S-E-K-U-R, is held by privacy advocates globally in the assurance that their data is kept truly safe by proprietary technology, independent platform, and military-grade encryption methods. Your data is yours alone. Secure does not data mine, use, or sell your data. Experience the bliss of knowing that your privacy is not in jeopardy from the prying hands of big tech and that you have a greater degree of security than people who are getting their stuff hacked these days. Go with secure. S-E-K-U-R dot com. Use the coupon code buck for one week free and 25% off. Be sure to use that coupon code buck when you go to secure S-E-K-U-R dot com. Regain your privacy. Protect yourself online. You're in the Freedom Hut. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Get the latest from Buck at BuckSexton.com. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton, and it's always an honor and privilege to fill his big shoes and talk to you, this incredible, patriotic, amazing American audience. And we've got a heck of a week for you. And I think the running theme of this week is that we're going to touch on all the third rails that you can't talk about, on China and our ruling class's collusion with it, the fraud of wokeism and on racism masquerading as anti-racism, on election integrity, questions you're not supposed to be able to ask around the origins of the coronavirus, and on and on. And I think the running theme is going to be, ultimately, when we look back on it, The commanding heights of society, the ruling class wanting to dominate every aspect of your life to increase its power, grow its wealth and its privilege, and to shut you up and to try to shunt you out of American life. And we're not going to let that happen to this country. We're going to defend the American way of life. So I was so amped up yesterday that I didn't formally introduce myself. So if you haven't heard me as a guest hosting this program before... My name is Ben Weingarten. I'm deputy editor of Real Clear Investigations, a senior contributor at The Federalist. And you can also read me in places like Newsweek and Epic Times. Last year, I came out with my first book, American Ingrate, Ilhan Omar and the Progressive Islamist of the Takeover of the Democratic Party, which predicted the radicalism that we're seeing on display from from the White House on down to grade schools across this country. Today, you can follow me on Twitter at B.H. Weingarten and keep up with my work at winegarden.substack.com. And before we jump in today, also worth noting, the Clay Travis and Buck Sexton show will start next Monday at noon Eastern time. And Jesse Kelly will be replacing Buck's 6 p.m. time slot the following Monday on June 28th. So in today's program, we're going to have a few great guests talking about allegations of election fraud in Georgia with Paul Sperry, the decline of New York and what its implications are, for America with Seth Barron, author of a great new book on that subject. And then also a little bit of a news you can use, how to fight back 
against the wokeism pervading every aspect of, of our society today because it's so imperative to not just be negative and not just assess and observe what appears to be this ongoing onslaught that's unstoppable. It's imperative that we actually fight back in an affirmative way, in the same way that a Chris Rufo fights back with critical race theory or a Governor Ron DeSantis fights back against wokeism in all of its forms within his state. It's time to go on offense. With that, let's talk a little bit first about the onslaught that we face. And I alluded to this yesterday in talking about what we have on display at the G7 and beyond in this wild European vacation for putative President Joe Biden, the sort of weekend at Biden presidency. We have a decadent, dying, self-loathing ruling class, and it exposes itself to be the charade that it is Every single day. Yesterday, the big news from bumbling President Biden's European trip uh, was his speaking with NATO officials. And NATO, for one of the first times, recognized the problem of China. But what did it say about China in this resolution or communique that it came to? said this in part, China's stated ambitions and assertive behavior present systemic challenges to the rules-based international order and to areas relevant to alliance security. We are concerned those coercive policies which stand in contrast to the fundamental values enshrined in the Washington Treaty. It's rapidly expanding its nuclear arsenal with more warheads and a larger number of sophisticated delivery systems to establish a nuclear triad. It, talk, it goes on to talk about military civil fusion strategy, essentially that everything is part of the Chinese Communist Party's strategy for dominance. And it talks about its cooperation militarily, of course, with Russia and beyond. We remain concerned with China's frequent lack of transparency and use of disinformation. We call on China to uphold its international commitments and to act responsibly in the international system, including the space, cyber, and maritime domains in keeping with its role as a major power. It's not worth the paper that it's printed on. That's the real takeaway from quotes like that. We're talking decades into China's strategy to be the dominant world power, to no longer bite its time and hide its capabilities, but actively, aggressively engaging in every single domain to be the dominant player in the world. And all of a sudden now NATO recognizes it, and this is what it claims the threat is. And then it goes on to say, NATO maintains a constructive dialogue with China where possible. We welcome opportunities to engage with China on areas of relevance to the alliance and to common challenges such as climate change with the world's largest polluter, who you know will cheat on any kind of deal you ever come to on environmentalism who lies, cheats, and steals as a regular practice, who never lives up to its international commitments. But let's have a constructive dialogue where possible. Engaging with China was China's entire strategy to become a dominant world power, and our globalist elite have been addicted to that engagement because they think they're going to enrich themselves off of it, or they think China's going to be the dominant power and better to kowtow now rather than later, thinking that ultimately they won't get their heads chopped off by the Chinese Communist Party. Statement, again, not worth the paper it's printed on. Allies urge China to engage meaningfully in dialogue, confidence building, and transparency measures regarding its nuclear capabilities and doctrine, reciprocal transparency, and understanding would benefit both NATO and China. I mean, it's such a joke. How do they even write this stuff? Who even thinks this stuff up? And how much must they be laughing in Beijing about statements like this 
while the onslaught to be the dominant world power continues apace, and oh, by the way, we've just self, we've just destroyed ourselves, committed suicide for more than 12 months as a consequence of something that almost assuredly came from a virology lab in Wuhan, where there was military research going on. And we know, by the way, that China, of course, has been keenly interested in bioweaponry and biowarfare in its doctrine, in its own rhetoric and statements for years. But what does NATO's general secretary say in a comment in response to, I guess, this portion of the communique? China is not our adversary, but the balance of power is shifting. China's not our adversary. Oh, my God. You're talking about the general secretary of NATO. China's not our adversary in 2021. Is there any greater measure of how out to lunch The elite are or that they're just lying through their teeth and they know it to be so and they can't admit it. They either fear it or again, they're trying to kowtow to their future masters. And where's the Biden administration in all this? Here's what it had to say, according to the Chinese Communist Party mouthpiece, the Global Times recently. According to the China Central Television Anthony Blinken, Secretary of State, said that the recent series of contacts between the U.S. and China are beneficial to bilateral relations, and the U.S. is looking forward to increasing contact and exchanges with China at all levels. Think about the insanity of that. You're talking about the regime that wants to be the dominant power on the earth to supplant the United States, that in their own rhetoric and in their own doctrine puts America as the number one enemy. And according to the CCP mouthpiece, U.S. is looking forward to increasing contact and exchanges with China at all levels. Even if you don't believe them, where's the Biden administration saying no? Where's the Biden administration saying we're going to cut off all ties? We are going to unplug, disconnect from the Chinese Communist Party in every strategically significant area and beyond because it poses a threat and it lays out the threat to us every single day in word and deed. The fact that you don't see that tells you everything you need to know about how compromised our so-called ruling class is. And meanwhile, the great uniter who refrains from mean tweets just propagandized against half the country in front of foreign leaders on foreign soil. Let's go to cut it. The Republican Party is vastly diminished in numbers. The leadership of the Republican Party is fractured, and the Trump wing of the party is the bulk of the party, but it makes up a significant minority of the American people. And we'll see. Significant minority of the American people, 74 million voters. Yep, significant minority, not to be listened to. Uh, We're probably going to call a decent percentage of them would-be or actual domestic terrorists. And we'll talk a little bit later, actually, about the new national domestic terrorism strategy that the administration just put out today. There used to be a rule, you know, for the people who talk about norms and standards. There was a rule that domestic politics ends at the water's edge. So what does Joe Biden do? Swamp creature par excellence with 50 years doing this in Washington, D.C., being the quintessential Washington establishmentarian. Goes overseas and attacks roughly half the country. He doesn't know how wrong he is about where the Republican Party is, where the voters are. Excuse me, because the leadership may not be there, but we're there. We see everything for what it is when it comes to our establishment, the uniparty establishment in many cases. 
And it's total disgust and distaste for us. So we've got a couple of minutes left before we take a break, but I want to delve deeper into the China theme because it perfectly encapsulates the entire insanity of our ruling class and how it leverages crises to both protect itself and ultimately, again, of course, to assume more power. And let me preview that with this. The benighted New York Times yesterday got around to doing some more incremental reporting on the Wuhan lab leak theory. And it spoke to the so-called bat lady or bat woman, Shi Zengli, the virologist there. I'll quote briefly from the article. Dr. Shi has denied accusations about lab leak and now finds herself defending the reputation of her lab and by extension that of her country. Reached on her cell phone last week, Dr. Shi said at first that she preferred not to speak directly with reporters citing her institute's policies, yet she could barely contain her frustration. How on earth can I offer up evidence for something where there is no evidence, she said, her voice rising in anger during the brief, unscheduled conversation. I don't know how the world has come come to this, constantly pouring filth on an innocent scientist, she wrote in a text message because she's the victim here. In a rare interview over email, she denounced the suspicions as baseless, including the allegations that several of her colleagues may have been ill before the outbreak emerged. The speculation boils down to one central question. Did Dr. Xi's lab, one institute of virology, hold any source of the new coronavirus before the pandemic erupted? Dr. Xi's answer is an emphatic no. This was printed as if this was crusading journalism, but you're talking about someone who, in effect, serves the Chinese Communist Party. And the Times goes on to say she's not a member of the party, which is sort of hard to understand. Everyone there is effectively subservient to the CCP. If you don't think that those words were dictated to her, that she was prepared for a response, and that she would love to give this response to New York Times and have them print it, then you haven't been, you don't understand the adversary that we're dealing with. And of course, all of you do. But the New York Times prints this up as if this is legit. And when we come back, I want to talk about why lab leak is so important and goes so far beyond just this pandemic and all the knock-on effects of this pandemic. Welcome back this to the Buck Sexton Show. Ben Weinger on the Buck Sexton Show. Back And before the break, we were talking about lab leak and its greater significance. So why is it so important to figure out the origins of the coronavirus? This is obvious, but it's worth stating. First of all, it's imperative to know the truth about what China's efforts were. It's also imperative to know the truth about who on the U.S. side or what institutions on the U.S. side were complicit. And the reason it's so important is because if you want to have any justice, if you want to ensure this never happens again, if you want to deter malign behavior or incompetent behavior or something else related to it, you better get to the bottom of what transpired here. But of course, we're talking months and months later. And as I said yesterday, the smoking guns are already dead and buried, potentially literally in some cases when we talk about potential whistleblowers here. What the whole lab leak situation and the origins of this coronavirus boils down to is a broader theme of China's adversarial nature and the way it's embedded and insinuated itself into every aspect of Western society and the globalist project to essentially, in effect, transfer our wealth, our technology and our power over to China. How do I tie that to the coronavirus? Well, consider all the scandals that had to basically come together and conspire together to end up in a place where a leak in China would lead us to destroy ourselves here or a potential leakage in China at the very least. You had a government scandal, it appears, in terms of the money flows 
into the Wuhan Institute of Virology and then also the internal deliberations around not wanting to get to the bottom of lab leak because, God forbid, it would give credence to President Trump. You have the public health scandal of Fauci and others, not only in terms of their relations with these Chinese virologists and beyond and the money flows, but also, of course, the asinine nature of the policies. Don't wear any mask, then wear 60 masks on your face. Social distancing, six feet figured out with their thumb in the air, essentially. And on and on and on. Lockdowns, which have never been tried in the past, and we know that there's basically been no differences, and in some cases, even much better, superior performance in terms of public health in places that didn't shut down nearly to the degree of our most draconian cities and jurisdictions across the country. There's a medical journal scandal, which is barely even talked about, which I'll delve into briefly. And then, of course, there's the media scandal about we can't look into lab leak. We need, we can't, we can't take as legitimate or acceptable, anything from Trump or Pompeo or Cotton and beyond. The medical journal part of this is really worth noting briefly. And Melissa Chen of The Spectator put out a must-read Twitter thread on this, which I'll share briefly from. Uh, She's looking at an article in the great publication Unheard, And she notes, the media's culpability in suppressing lab leak is obvious, but a larger share of the blame falls upon science journal reviewers and publishers, the scientific establishment. They shut down discussion and discredited alternatives. And this article from Unheard quotes scientists talking about the fact that the medical journals themselves are partially responsible for the cover-up, which goes to my point yesterday about the fact that even public health is being corrupted effectively by politics. The article says the Paris group, for instance, submitted a letter to The Lancet in early January signed by 14 experts from around the world. That's January uh, 2020, calling for an open debate, arguing that natural origin is not supported by conclusive arguments and that a lab origin cannot be formally discarded. This does seem contentious, but it was rejected on the basis it was not a priority for us, according to The Lancet. When the authors queried the decision, it was reassessed and returned without peer review by the editor-in-chief there and told to let this go. She goes on to say, Melissa Chen tweeting, the grant makers, the NIH, the science journals, the scientists, experts, all of their incentives to tell the truth are misaligned. It's a giant racket. And they, like all bureaucrats, have only one goal, to maximize the potency of the bureaucracy. But it's not just that. No, it's not just that. There's a China tie-in here as well. While there were personal and institutional interests to protect, Chen goes on, there might be something else. Just like in Hollywood, the need to appease Chinese commercial interests might be at play here. China is the biggest national sponsor of publishers that produce these journals. Did you know that? Allegations swirl that it was not down to editorial misjudgment, but something more sinister, says Unheard, a desire to appease China for commercial reasons. Financial Times revealed four years ago that debt-laden Springer Nature, the German group that publishes Nature, was blocking access in China to hundreds of academic articles mentioning subjects deemed sensitive by Beijing, such as Hong Kong, Taiwan, or Tibet. China's also spending lavishly around the world to win supremacy in science, which includes becoming the biggest national sponsor of open access journals published by both Springer Nature and Elvesier owner of The Lancet. Corporate links to China compromise output and distort agendas, especially investigating something as as sensitive as the origins of the coronavirus. And it goes on to detail more of it. So we're going to run out of time here in this opening monologue, and we'll turn back to this a little bit later. But it's worth knowing that at every single level, with respect to lab leak and the coronavirus and beyond, There's direct or indirect complicity and, in effect, collusion between the West and the Chinese Communist Party that made this infinitely more bad than it could be. And our ruling class used it to try to usurp more power and take it away from you and expand its privilege. We'll talk about that a little bit more coming up later in the program. This is Ben Weingarten for Buck Sexton on The Buck Sexton Show. Back right after this. 
even with all the craziness going on from the Democrats in terms of spending and economic regulation these days, there's going to be a surge in the stock market, according to my friends at Carnivore Trading. I know could be a surprise to you, but there are some key indicators that Carnivore Trading has picked up on. And they think some of the biggest profits are going to come in sectors that a lot of Wall Street experts miss. You see, Carnivore Trading is an elite squad of strategists who influence major Wall Street investors. And when you subscribe to Carnivore, you'll receive real-time text alerts of explosive trades they're making for their elite clients. You can mirror their trades with your discount broker or pass. But why would you pass when their trades routinely crush the S&P 500? And they guarantee you'll earn five times your monthly subscription or double your money back. 5x your monthly fee just by mirroring their trades. The market looks to be on the verge of a massive upswing. Get off the sidelines and mirror Carnivore's trades. Right now, you'll get two weeks free. Visit GetOurTrades.com. That's right, GetOurTrades.com. Make sure you use promo code BUCK. Just go to this website, GetOurTrades.com, promo code BUCK. See website for guaranteed terms and conditions. Past performance not a guarantee of future earnings. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. And in my opening monologue today, I talked a little bit about the exploitation in every respect of not just the coronavirus, but by a rolling class, uh, but lab leak itself and how that sort of crystallized or was a microcosm of the general ruling class onslaught that we face. And one of the ways, of course, that the coronavirus was leveraged is in how we run our elections in 2020, which led to a series of a slew of dramatic measures that essentially brought us as far away as we've ever been from voting on a singular election day, showing a signature at a location in a verifiable and at least facially above board sort of manner. And one of the people who has been digging into potential abnormalities associated with the 2020 election, a third rail that a ruling class does not want anyone to touch. And by the way, it's worth noting that when I produced a podcast on this for the Claremont Institute, YouTube actually took it down because we dared to just raise the most basic questions regarding election integrity in 2020 and the legitimacy of 2020 elections is Paul Sperry, who's a senior reporter for Real Clear Investigations, where I serve as a deputy editor as well. And he's written a column out last week why a judge has Georgia vote fraud on his mind, pristine Biden ballots that looked Xerox. And it's worth noting that by happenstance, I found out after uh, we were preparing for this interview that Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, who I'm sure every listener remembers, he claimed to be above reproach and resisting President Trump's supposedly wild calls about the election. He tweeted out about 24 hours ago, restoring confidence in our elections is going to be impossible as long as Fulton County's elections leadership continues to fail the voters of Fulton County and the voters of Georgia. They need new leadership to step up and take charge. And then he said, new revelations that Fulton County is unable to produce all ballot drop box transfer documents will be investigated thoroughly as we have with other counties that failed to follow Georgia rules and regulations regarding drop boxes. This cannot continue. And Julie Kelly, who we had on yesterday, pointed out in December 2020 that Raffensperger told the Wall Street Journal, quote, November's election was the most secure in history. In Georgia, there is no evidence of widespread voter fraud and no significant issues with absentee ballots. And worth noting as well, before we jump over to Paul Sperry, that later in the week, we'll be talking with a state legislator in Arizona, where there's currently an audit ongoing as well, just as there is in Fulton County, Georgia. And we'll be talking about everything that's going on there, where there's some remarkable revelations as well. But for now, let's talk Georgia with Paul Sperry. Paul, thanks so much for coming on the program. Thanks for having me. 
So let's talk about what was discovered thus far in Fulton County. Essentially, it appears that there are witnesses who claim to have received pristine ballots marked clearly for Biden universally in every single instance. What do we know about what's gone on in Fulton County? Yeah, so mail-in and drop-off ballots, and they had over 36, uh, I believe about 36 of these drop boxes spread out throughout Fulton County uh, in Atlanta. Uh, these ballots have to be folded uh, to fit inside return envelopes, but according to the sworn statements of several poll workers in Fulton County, potentially thousands of mail-in ballots were counted for Biden that had no folds or creases, and they had identical bubbled-in marks for Biden with the exact same white void inside them, and further suggesting they were Xerox, they were printed on different stock paper. So I don't know if there's any fire here, but there's a lot of smoke, and a judge, a local judge, has seen enough to order an inspection. I mean, no fewer than four poll managers, these are veterans of these elections there in Atlanta, Fulton County, have come forward signing affidavits, swearing they saw stacks of mail-in ballots for Biden that looked like they'd been Xeroxed. And one of the lead witnesses was fired by the county after she blew the whistle. And then there was an apparent break-in at the warehouse where the county was supposed to keep the suspicious ballots under lock and key. And then right before the petitioners and the county officials were supposed to meet with the judge at the warehouse to settle the terms of the inspection, the county hires a team of criminal defense lawyers and files a last-minute motion to dismiss the case. (laughs) So now the inspection is in the state of limbo until a judge can rule on the motion to dismiss, and that um, hearing takes place this coming Monday. So first of all, let's talk about the scope of what we're dealing with here. Uh, How many mail-in ballots are we talking about potentially being reviewed and being impacted here? Well, the lead plaintiff in the complaint uh, against the county says up to 20,000 probably false ballots could could have been cast for Biden in Georgia's Fulton County. Um, That remains to be seen, uh, but... If there's nothing to hide, you'd think that the county officials would welcome the opportunity to prove the claim for fraud wrong, but that's not what's happening. At every turn, they've tried to throw up roadblocks in the way of the inspection of these suspicious ballots. Is there any justification given by the county for firing this whistleblowing individual? No, they never they never did give an explanation. Even Raffensperger was... Uh, you know, in high dudgeon over it, uh, seemingly put out a statement and said he condemned. Uh, and there's another one too, another whistleblower alongside her that was was fired by the county without explanation. So it was kind of universally. Uh, even some Democrats in the county said that that wasn't. Uh, you know, it, was, it appeared untoward what what they did. So there seems that so they're giving a lot of signals that they're trying to cover something up. Is, is the is the thing and until they can get you know into that warehouse and supposedly there's uh, several shrink wrap pallets of ballots in there uh, get somebody in there uh, like this judge somebody neutral to actually go through um, and have an independent 
type of uh, inspection of the ballots to examine the integrity of these ballots to see if they were counterfeited or Xeroxed or there was some type of fraud involved, uh, these questions are going to remain. So you mentioned a break-in at the warehouse where... I gather all of these ballots are being held. What what details do you have on that? I mean, it, it's it seems this seems like something out of uh, a, a story. I mean, this does not seem real. You're talking about a whistleblower being fired and a break in at a warehouse where the ballots are being held. I mean, what's going on there? Yeah, so the warehouse where thousands of the paper ballots, these are absentee ballots, are stored. Was supposed to be under a twenty four seven security watch. The county guaranteed the judge that they would be under a 24-7 security watch uh, by the Fulton County Sheriff's Office. However, on the afternoon of Saturday, May 29th, an alarm sounded in the building and an exterior exterior door was found to be unlocked and there were no Fulton County Sheriff's deputies on the scene. They had mysteriously left the scene right before the security breach. So you're basically describing a Godfather one like scene at this warehouse. <laughs> yeah, it's just there's 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 a lot of drama going on right now. I think as they get closer to the, this um, source, I think uh, the the local and the, the, by the way, Fulton County is all completely Democrat controlled and run, and the elections office is the department is controlled by the Democrat commissioner through his appointee, um, the elections board. And so I think they're, they're getting, they're squirming a little bit here under the pressure. I don't know if they thought that this, this judge would actually go ahead with ordering the inspection. And there's, there's a lot of squirrely stuff happening now, put it that way. So we saw all sorts of claims like these regarding mail-in ballots in 2020 in states across the country. Why did this particular case rise to the level when so many others failed? Well, in this case, you had a number of sworn affidavits, people swearing under penalty of perjury, and these were veterans of a number of past elections. One of the, the key witnesses had been working these elections for two decades. And they all saw the same thing in different stacks. So there was a pattern. And I think that's what caught the judge's eye. And this is this is a nonpartisan judge ran as a nonpartisan candidate, although I looked up his FEC um, political contributions and he gets exclusively the Democrats, which is interesting. And he he I think saw enough to where he said, "Okay, let's let's get to the bottom of this." It's worth noting, and you reference in the article that former President Trump is watching this case closely. And I, as I noted to listeners yesterday, I had an interview with President Trump last week at Trump Tower, and he said something to the effect of, "You know, you've heard the phrase, he who controls the vote vote counting controls." elections. And, uh, you know, I think he said that with an eye towards both Georgia and Arizona and elsewhere as well. So we have about a minute and a half until uh, a break here. Uh, people have talked about Georgia. Well, let's let's take it this direction. What are, what are the implications to the extent these are 
photocopied ballots, fraudulent ballots, essentially. Does it mean that there is it possible that there are other such ballots across Georgia? And is there any evidence for that? And how much are we talking in terms of magnitude here? Ultimately, the question is, would, would this be enough to actually switch what happened in the election in Georgia? Well, there was uh, there there several affidavits filed by actual registered Democrats who are poll watchers in neighboring DeKalb and and Cobb counties, which are also democratically controlled, who witnessed the exact same thing. They observed the exact exact same thing uh, as the um, witnesses in Fulton County, where you had uh, these pristine, suspiciously pristine looking ballots for Biden that had the exact same carbon copy type of bubbling. Uh, print on different paper, no folds or creases when they should, you know, these are mail in, mailed in ballots or uh, ballots that are put into an envelope and dropped off at the drop, one of these drop boxes, which, by the way, were unsurveilled and unregulated throughout Fulton County and these other counties. But the um, point is that that shows a pattern outside of Fulton County, so it could have been much more widespread. But as you know, Biden won by a razor thin 12,000 votes in uh, Georgia. So just in Fulton County, if you're talking about 10 to 20,000, as the lead plaintiff is talking about as counterfeited balance for Biden, then, you know, that covers that. Uh, but I don't know if the finding, if there are any findings of fraud, you know, hard evidence of fraud, um, which of course, you know, I think that would have to be settled in, in court. If it, you know, you're talking about changing the results of the election. In these swing states, um, including Arizona, but it could convince more states to pass anti-fraud measures, such as uh, voter ID signature verifications, restoration of the rules regulating mail-in and absentee balloting uh, that were liberalized in the name of COVID in the 2020 race, um, and in general, just rolling back a lot of this uh, these rules that were abandoned to make voting easier uh, in these swing states. So that, so, you know, that could be very significant in and of itself, regardless of whether or not um, evidence of fraud changes any results of, of, of the elections. We'll have more with Paul Sperry right after this. We're back with Paul Sperry talking about, let's call them irregularities, potentially in Fulton County, Georgia, potentially thousands of mail-in ballots that may have been fraudulently produced and cast. And one of the things I wanted to ask, Paul, was in, in your investigating for this story, do you have any insights into what percentage of ballots were denied uh, or deemed fraudulent or otherwise dismissed in Georgia in the general 2020 election versus past such elections? Uh no, not overall, but there were uh, there was a spike in double voting, people casting more than one ballot. Um, that definitely was uh, an issue in this race, both the primary and the general. Um, and uh, something I failed to mention earlier was that um, I did talk to some local officials, election officials, and. And there is a caveat to, or, or a possible plausible explanation for why ballots would have been Xerox. And this is the, the key issue here. Uh, these election officials tell me that, you know, they're allowed to Xerox absentee ballots. 
that are damaged in the mail or uh, as they're being removed from envelopes. But for every copied ballot, the county would have to produce a damaged ballot marked exactly the same way that the pristine ballot was marked. That several of these eyewitnesses testified under oath that stacks upon stacks, you know, hundreds of ballots in those stacks looked like they had been duplicated from the same original ballot. So that, if that's true, that would, you know, that would wash away any of these explanations that they're talking about that are innocuous and benign. Um, so the bottom line is what they're trying to find out, were these Xerox, and if they were Xerox, uh, were they stuffed into these drop boxes that were unregulated, these 36 around Fulton County, or was it possibly an inside job within the elections department? So that's what they want to find out, and the judge seems to, uh, with some restrictions, want wants to let that go forward, but he has to first rule on this this motion to dismiss by the county. So in just about a minute or so, uh, Georgia's election law recently passed this year, which got all, raised all sorts of outrage across the country, at least uh, in the corporate media and across Democrats in our political class as well. Huge uproar. Uh, what actually happened within that law that will impact or would have implications for what transpired in 2020 that we're seeing in Fulton County? Did the state do anything to ensure that you wouldn't have the potential for potentially potentially, allegedly, Xeroxed ballots like this? Well, they they did. Amazingly, they agreed to keep the drop boxes, which they never had before until Stacey Abrams and other Democrat pressure groups insisted on them. Um, uh, you know, they, they used the excuse of COVID to put them all out, uh, but they're going to limit them. They're going to cut back substantially the number of drop boxes that you can put out there um and you know just a handful now they're going to allow Fulton to down from 36 uh they're going to try and keep them only at election offices instead of just anywhere like they were putting them out before uh so that that could curb some potential fraud uh but uh critics say they just they didn't go far enough and they didn't want to uh, go too far to roll back um, these more liberalized uh, rules because they would have gotten hammered by uh, Stacey Abrams' groups and been called, you know, racist and disenfranchising African Americans and so on and so forth. Paul, I gather you'll have more reporting on this, and, and we'll look forward to reporting on your report, reportage. The name of the article is Why a Judge Has Georgia Vote Fraud on His Mind, Pristine Biden Ballots That Looked Xeroxed. Thanks so much for coming on the program. There is a new development in the case, which we will be breaking later this week, by the way, on Real Clear Investigations. But if we're honest, we also had two other, two other types of mistakes that caused a lot of loss of life. One were just plainly political leadership mistakes. Um, there was a lot. We denied the virus for too long out of the Trump White House. We, there was too much squashing of dissent and playing on divisions. But I'd also think we all need to look at one another and ask ourselves, um, what do we need to do better next time? And in many respects, being able to sacrifice a little bit for one another. Um, to get through this and to save more lives is going to be is going to be essential. And that's something that I think we could all have done a little bit better on. You didn't do a good enough job during the coronavirus pandemic, dear listener. That's what Biden's COVID czar 
Andy Slavitt had to say on CBS. You just didn't sacrifice enough. Your small business might have been destroyed. You might have had to juggle your job and your kids for weeks on end with no end in sight. While the teachers unions in many cases took advantage of it. You couldn't go out and live like a normal person and enjoy your natural rights, but people who hate your guts rioted and protested in the streets with total impunity. You couldn't even go to a place of worship freely. You might get arrested. But you just didn't sacrifice enough, says our ruling class. And this is a good segue back to what I was talking about in our opening monologue today. Our ruling class leveraged the coronavirus to the hilt. And of course, they opposed at every turn the many policies, by the way, the Trump administration implemented that led us to have a vaccine in record time, that stopped the flow in of the virus from China, which could have been far worse with a travel ban that they called xenophobic and then they denied later on. Think about what they leveraged the coronavirus to do while they tell you you just need to sacrifice more next time. And that implies, by the way, there's going to be a next time for them. Because they want all the power. They leverage the coronavirus to usurp unprecedented amounts of power at the state and local level. Thank God the president didn't do that and didn't set a precedent like that. But of course, the other side will, I'm sure, next time around if they're in power. There is a massive transfer of wealth, in effect, from the real economy to the digital economy. That is to the bi-coastal elite who our ruling class serves and comes from. They're seeking to exploit the collapse that they created in our, in our economies and beyond with a great reset to lead to the green insanity, which will be another wealth transfer to their friends and deindustrialization of the economy and probably a further digitalization of the economy, which will kill mom and pop stores across this country and businesses. Of course, they're gonna, they leveraged the coronavirus in every possible way to destroy President Trump as a symbol for the 74 million plus Americans who still have their heads on relatively straight. And of course, they also used the coronavirus crisis to increase censorship by proxy via big tech, which banned discussion of all manner of topics, including around the coronavirus, including things like lab leak that all of a sudden are now kosher to talk about. And by the way, tomorrow, I'm, I'm very pleased to announce that we'll have Senator Ron Johnson on the program, and he himself has been subjected to the big tech censorship bullies. They usurped all of this power. And by the way, where's Andy Slavitt? He's talking about all the mistakes on our side that need to be examined. Well, what about the freaking origin of the coronavirus that led us to take these self-righteously suicidal policies and to deal with the cult of maskdom for months and months on end and to completely shut down normalcy in our lives in a completely anti-scientific and unscientific fashion where, of course, they would not allow any competing views, which is the antithesis of what the scientific method calls for from the people who say trust the science. No, when you hear trust the science, what they mean is bow down to our politics. And what are their politics? Well, now the Biden administration today is still deferring to the WHO, China, Chinese Communist Party controlled WHO, to do what it can't or won't do with respect to investigating China. And yes, they've basically shoved it off onto the intelligence community to do a 90-day review. But let's remember something for a second. The intelligence community has been wildly off on all things China-related for decades in terms of its assessments of China's weaponry capability, in terms of the destruction of our intelligence network there, in toto, our assets there, under the Obama administration, liquidated. 
And it's gone soft on China when it doesn't suit the narrative as recently as regarding the 2020 election. When the director of national intelligence at the time, John Radcliffe, and then an an analytics ombudsman for the intelligence community wrote a report where he said that intelligence officials went easy on China and held it to a lower standard, essentially, than Russia because they didn't want to serve, in effect, reading between the lines, the president's narrative about the China threat. So why is it going to be different this time? And by the way, isn't it interesting that you go to the intelligence community for this review? It's actually the perfect place to go if you don't want everyone to know what actually happened. And I'm not maligning intelligence analysts out there. I'm sure they're capable of doing the job. But the higher-ups, the political people who answer to their ultimate consumer, Joe Biden, well, think about this. The intelligence community is the perfect place to go to not be open and transparent about whatever was found, including potentially American complicity in this through our public health bureaucrats and elected officials devoted to working with communist China in perpetuity. The intelligence community can come back with an ambiguous answer about what transpired. They can say for national security and reasons, we can't really go into detail about it. And at the end of the day, I don't believe we'll get to the truth of it. And the truth may have already been destroyed. And China won't pay under this administration is, I think, where we're ultimately going. And the intelligence community review, I think, may prove to be a ruse. And I pray to God that I'm wrong on this, but I don't think that's where we're headed. Let's take a quick break. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on The Buck Sexton Show, and we'll be back right after this. Welcome back to The Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton, and our next guest is covering a topic that's really near and dear to my own heart, and that is New York City, and Buck Sexton's heart, I should say, as well. On a, on a personal note, I was born here, raised here for the first year of my life back in the late 80s. Parents moved out to the New Jersey suburbs outside the city, saw the city roar back to life after the dark days of Mayor Dinkins and what preceded him as well. Uh, And under Rudy Giuliani have a a total revival renaissance, uh, sort of maintain a steady state under Mayor Bloomberg and then subsequently decay under Mayor Bill DeCamio, or de Blasio, I should say, Freudian slip, or not so much. And I actually went to school at Columbia University uh, starting in 2006. So I've really been here in sort of the rise and fall twice to some degree. Went to Columbia, stayed in New York for the next decade plus, and then moved my family out of this town again uh, in 2020 and back to the New Jersey suburbs. So in my own personal life, I've sort of followed the ups and downs of this city and and hopefully gotten out at the right times uh, and in at the right times as well. And someone who's watched this city keenly with the eye of a dogged, devoted journalist and reporter is Seth Barron. Seth is the managing editor of the Claremont Institute's The American Mind. And at full disclosure, I do some work on behalf of the Claremont Institute and have contributed to The American Mind as well. Before that, he was at City Journal doing an exceptional job making the work of writers like mine significantly better. And he's the author of the new book, The Last Days of New York, A Reporter's True Tale. Seth, thanks, thanks so much for coming on the program today. Oh, thank you, Ben. It's a pleasure. So New York has experienced, as I noted, a sort of dramatic rise from the ashes over the last 20 years. And under, I think it's fair to say, essentially a Marxist mayor, uh, it threatens to waste all of those gains and essentially go back to the bad old days that preceded them. Does that generally cover the arc of things? Uh, More or less. I mean, in a thumbnail sketch, you know, I just want to point out it's funny, uh, only last week, de Blasio was talking about that phrase, the bad old days. And he said the bad old days of New York 
were not the 70s and 80s when when crime was soaring. He said the bad old days were actually the 90s and 2000s when crime was declining <laughs> because people because people's rights weren't respected. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and, and his definition know. of rights, of course, is uh, people being able to loiter, urinate on the streets, uh, have no cash bail policies, act with total impunity to riot and protest and take on the cops uh, with no recourse whatsoever. Is that the general gist of it? Uh, I mean, I guess so. If, if you look at it, I mean, he seemed to be I think he was talking about, you know, stop, question, frisk and broken windows policing and, you know, how that was really like, you know, savage, uh, even though, you know, as, as you as you pointed out, like crime, I mean, crime crested murders crested under Dinkins when they topped 2000 a year. Uh, and then under Giuliani and Bloomberg, they were driven down to you know 300 a year maybe less. Uh, and now we're seeing a, you know, a start, a sharp rise again, but, uh, yeah. So that's, that's the idea. Uh, you know, so the right, the right to be safe on the streets, the right to take the subway and not be slashed across the face that, you know, those rights don't really matter quite as much, I guess. And, and it's worth pointing out, I think just on an individual level, what it means when a city goes from, economic strength and and relatively, I mean, by any big city standards, incredibly low violent crime rates and relative peace and prosperity that there used to be a day, as you noted, first of all, peep shows, graffiti everywhere, crime on the violent crime on the subways and needles in the streets and all those sort of cliche images that we talk about. And this was not a safe city. This was a big violent city and the kind of place where you would want to get out of late at night. You couldn't walk alone on the streets. And we had you know a couple of decades of essentially the reversal of all those trends. And now within a very short period of time, we've reached a scenario where all of those quality of life issues are coming back to the fore. And at a very micro level, one of the things that my family saw when we decided to get out of here during last year was literally that the city was putting drug addicts and former violent criminals in some cases, housing them homeless, uh, former drug addicts and criminals and the like, and housing them in hotels and other buildings in residential neighborhoods, in fine neighborhoods in Manhattan. So you ran the risk, if you had young children, of them being exposed to all of that antisocial behavior, to put it as diplomatically as possible. How is it that things have reversed so quickly in this town? And is it really just a dramatic percentage increase in violence? crime and all of these other metrics by which we judge the livability of a city uh, or on an absolute basis is there really something terrible going on here well look here's the thing i mean de blasio and some of his apologists have pointed out that you know crime is still much lower than it was you know even under some of the you know even under giuliani like total murders um however people don't live in a long-term historical trend. They live with the experience of like the day-to-day velocity of, you know, how these indicators are moving. Uh, And right now they're being whipsawed by, you know, practical like G-forces as New York City sees, you know, the fastest rate of acceleration of its crime crime rate. Um, you know, murders were up in 2020, uh, 38, 40 percent. Shootings were up 100 percent. 
this year so far, murders are up again, and that's on top of last year's increase. Shootings are again way up. Um, you know, thank God a lot of these people don't have better aim, <laughs> I guess, because otherwise murder would be much worse. So that's the problem, is that it, the sudden reversal is, is, is what's scary to people. Um, and the, the, the complete collapse of, uh, you know, I guess, you, I mean, just to put it, you know, like manners and mores on the street. Uh, you know, I live in the village and Washington Square Park over the last year has just deteriorated into this, you know, these all night raves where, you know, people on illegal motor, motorcycles, like those dirt bikes that people ride around, just tearing around the park at night. Um, now, the police can seize those vehicles. Like, they're illegal. They're not street ready. They can be seized on site. Um, but I, I guess the idea is that the, the, the police don't want to... Uh, they don't want to get into a position where they're trying to seize a motorcycle from someone who doesn't want it seized. And then it can turn into a you know, an ugly confrontation. And we know how these things play out. Look, the use of force is never pretty. So there's nothing easier than to drop a video of the police trying to restrain someone who's resisting and make it look like brutality. Um, you know, there's a difference between force and brutality, but that, that distinction is lost on people. And so this once again highlights a, a running theme this week. Yesterday I spoke a little bit about how medical research has been pervaded by wokeism and it's literally courted off certain fields of inquiry because people don't want to dare touch on a third rail. Here we're talking about public safety and, and politics effectively trumping it. How much of that is a consequence of the policymakers versus the fear of cops actually out on the beat well-founded fear that there will be political ramifications to them doing their jobs? Well, it's, it's dialectical, so it's both. Uh, it starts you know, with, uh, with policymakers and politicians, you know, advocating for the criminal class, advocating against policing, stressing this myth that the major problem on the streets is police violence against uh, minorities, uh, pushing the idea that some some communities are over-policed. You know, you hear a lot. Uh, you hear people on the left saying that uh, communities with low crime have, have very, you don't see any police around. So why is that? If you don't see any police around, it must be because the police are in fact causing the crime. The police are the problem. High crime communities have too many police. Um, but the thing is, like the nine, if you look at 9-11 data, 9-1-1 data, um, you know, p- calls for emergencies come from neighborhoods that have a lot of crime. Police don't get up in the morning and, you know, they're not ordered to go and harass black people or to go and just, you know, harry some minority community. They go where the crime is. Um, but policymakers have pushed against this idea. And then, yeah, they've imposed laws like, like, okay, getting rid of qualified immunity, putting police at personal risk of uh, being sued. 
you know, the diaphragm law, making it making police, you know, liable to prosecution for assault if they, you know, perhaps when they're sitting like trying to arrest somebody, they squeeze their they touch their back or chest. So, um, you know, and then as a result of that, police just um, withdraw from being like, why be proactive? What's what's the use? You know, just show up, show up at some point and and uh, write a report. Um, you know, you can count the bullets on the ground instead of like trying to get there quickly to to shoot the uh, perpetrator. So we're up against a, a break shortly, but I think it's worth noting that just like an individual's reputation, it seems very clear to me, and New York is a perfect example of this, and other major cities have followed similar, similar trajectories. I'm thinking, of course, of a place like San Francisco, for example, that it can take decades to build a great city, just like it can take decades to build one's reputation, and it can all go kaput and be collapsed very quickly if you have the wrong ideas or if I guess you have a bad sound bite for 10 seconds. Uh, so with that, when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about what preceded this decline that, that is resulting in the last days of New York and then what the lessons are for the country writ large. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on The Buck Sexton Show, and we'll be back with Seth Barron on his new book, The Last Days of New York, in just a minute. Welcome back to The Buck Sexton Show. Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. And we're talking with Seth Barron, author of the new book, The Last Days of New York, A Reporter's True Tale. So, Seth, before we get to The Last Days of New York, what were the policies that preceded these last days that resulted in a flourishing New York City in the 21st century? Well, you know, going back to uh, Giuliani, when he came in, he brought in uh, Bill Bratton and... You know, they adopted the, the broken windows theory of of neighborhood safety. Broken windows is, is widely taken as some kind of, um, you know, extremely harsh, zero tolerance regime of uh, surveillance and constant, uh, you know, discipline. But it's really not. Uh, the idea is that, you know, if if, if windows are broken, then more windows will be broken. You know, that the persistence of a uh, broken window just encourages more. So the idea is to maintain the same way, like, you know, if you don't do your dishes, they pile up and it becomes harder and harder to, to, to keep a clean kitchen. Um, the idea of broken windows policing is to, to, uh, signal to the community at large that that it's orderly. Um, and so people who are, you know, littering, people who are drinking outside, it's not that they necessarily have to be arrested, but, you know, perhaps warned. Uh, that So the indications are there that certain behaviors are not tolerated, and then the community becomes less criminogenic. Uh, so this was, you know, th- this was instituted uh, with great success. You know, it, the theory really turned out to work. Um, then under Bloomberg, you know, the pra- and Ray Kelly, the practice of stop, question, frisk, which is constitutional, um, was you know put put into put into a place sometimes you know aggressively, but the goal was to get guns off the street and. Thousands of lives were saved that way, you know, black lives, I may add. 
Um, so, you know, th- these policies, plus, of course, you know, a focus on, you know, helping businesses and improving tourism, uh, getting the schools working well. You know, all, all of this undergirded the prosperity and public safety that New Yorkers came to expect. And one of the other things also worth noting is that there's been a dramatic spike, and and mercifully the numbers are low, just like they're low on an absolute basis across the country, but there's been a dramatic spike in hate crimes in the New York City area, and it's worth noting that the perpetrators almost certainly are not MAGA hat wearers. Uh, Worth emphasizing that point. Um, But I I did want to ask, you know, kind of what has New York City done under Mayor de Blasio to reverse these gains? And what are the lessons for the country writ large? Do you see New York as sort of a proxy for where all major cities are going, for where the left is going in this country? Put it in its proper context. Certainly. Uh, Yes. I mean, New York City and state, this happened at the the, the local and the state level, have imposed uh, massive criminal justice reforms. These include bail reform, eliminating cash bail in most cases, uh, discovery reform, which makes it very hard for prosecutors to to get witnesses to testify. As I mentioned, they've gotten rid of qualified immunity. They've decriminalized a host of quality of life offenses like public urination, hanging out in parks after dark, public drinking, littering. Um, And these have all been codified. So that makes it that's going to make it much more difficult for a future mayor to undo the damage. And yes, of course, uh, New York City is not alone. There are many cities across the country going in exactly the same direction with hard left prosecutors declining prosecution. Uh, we're seeing the same thing in Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle, uh, Baltimore, Chicago. I mean, some of these cities were, you know, totally dysfunctional already, but they've gotten much worse. St. Louis, so, oh, absolutely. New York is a uh, New York is, is part is, is in the pack. OK, it's just that uh, we were kind of doing very well. We had we had bucked a lot of the the, the negative trends, but now we're, we're catching up. And it strikes me ironically that, of course, the so-called inequality, but really the disparity is between those who do well in New York City, and oftentimes it's foreigners who own a, the these opulent departments who don't even reside in them full-time, but the inequality, the chasm between the haves and the have-nots in this city will only be exacerbated as a consequence of this policy, which of course cuts at the arguments of so-called progressives like a Bill de Blasio in the first place. We have about 20 seconds left. What will people get out of your book that they might not have thought about coming into it, The Last Days of New York? that is um basically that how an entire cadre of professional agitators advocates uh hardcore progressive policymakers conspired to destroy the city it's not just one man Well, on that sunny note, we've been speaking with Seth Barron, managing editor of the Claremont Institute's The American Mind and author of the new book, The Last Days of New York, A Reporter's True Tale. Seth, thanks again so much for coming on the program. Thank you, Ben. Pleasure. And we'll be back right after this. Rashida Tlaib, uh, one of her close friends, member of your caucus, tweeted the following. Freedom of speech doesn't exist for Muslim women in Congress. The benefit of the doubt doesn't exist for Muslim women in Congress. Okay, you know, House Democratic leadership should be ashamed. Let me just say this. 
We did not uh, rebuke her. We thanked, uh, acknowledged that she made a clarification. So mm-hmm. before we go too far down the path. Yeah, I'm, these, these aren't my words. No, these I understand are, that. These are I understand caucus that. members' but, words. No, that's a member. Yeah. That's a caucus member. A caucus member. A caucus member. Yeah, so I just wanted to get yeah, your response and I'll tell you, to that. No, I'm not. I'm not responding. That we, the the Congresswoman Omar, is a valued member of our caucus. She asked her questions of the Secretary of State. Nobody criticized those about how people will be held accountable if we're not going to the International Court of Justice. That was a very legitimate question. Mm-hmm. That was not of concern. Members did become concerned when the, the uh, tweet that was put out equated the United States with the Taliban. And Hamas. Rashida Tlaib is accusing and, you of policing and, women. And, of and, and then she clarified it. Mm-hmm. And we thanked her for clarification. So do you want people to just let it go? They, they, they could say whatever they want. But what I'm saying is, is end of subject. I will hmm. promise you this. If we are fortunate enough to have the majority... Omar would not be serving on foreign affairs or anybody that has an anti-Semitic, anti-American view. That is not productive and that is not right. So those were some of the latest clips of the most recent uh, contra temps, let's call it, regarding Ilhan Omar, the member of the House from Minnesota, and uh, some of her colleagues as well there. Of course, you had Speaker Pelosi running interference for her, trying to make it seem as if she made a legitimate point when she compared treating Hamas and Israel equally, and the U.S. and the Taliban equally. And remember, you can remember back to this clip that's made the rounds, I think it was from 2013 or so, where essentially Ilhan Omar is mocking the way that a a teacher speaks in a class that she had on terrorism, speaks with an affected voice about al-Qaeda or Hezbollah. And she says, well, you know, you don't talk about the U.S. military in that sort of way. I'm paraphrasing there. But of course, this sort of moral equivalence has been part of her rhetoric since the time she busted out into the the national scene. And of course, Kevin McCarthy is right to say that no one like Omar should ever sit on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. And there's a a reason that's even deeper than just her anti-Americanism, her loathing of everything that this country stands for, her saying, and there are direct tweets about this, and I chronicle them in my book on Ilhan Omar, American Ingrate, Ilhan Omar and the Progressive Islamist Takeover, of the Democratic Party about how America was founded in genocide and, of course, rooted in racism and and white supremacy and beyond paraphrasing here. But it's not just that. It's not just Omar's awful worldview. It's that Omar actually has ties, and I document this in great detail, to Muslim Brotherhood-linked individuals and entities, as well as Erdogan's regime in Turkey, which is itself a major backer of and supporter of the Muslim Brotherhood and its offshoots as well. So talk about foreign collusion. If you apply the collusion standard, Russian collusion to President Trump, the false one, to Ilhan Omar, and you actually had the full force of the federal government investigating it, she could never get a security clearance. And she doesn't need one because she's a member of the House. The American people, and particularly those in her district, are the ones that get to determine whether or not she she gets a free pass, in effect, a waiver on the security clearance. But it's so much deeper than the moral equivalency on display. What it really comes down to, the entire Ilhan Omar story, and this was the purpose of my book in the first place, was to say that Ilhan Omar is the personification of where the Democratic Party is going and maybe where it is. And the party has caved repeatedly with respect to Omar's wretched views and associated policies. I mean, this is someone who is essentially a Marxist in her worldview. 
and an anti-American Marxist, but I guess they kind of go hand in hand. This is someone who believes, and look at her district, by the way. Minneapolis, the seat of her district, has gone to hell over the last year in no small part because of the exact kinds of policies that she loves. And it's already a very leftist place to begin with. But then you add the de-policing and then the anti-policing element to it, and you create a powder keg. And even leftist reporters who are honest, like Michael Tracy, for example, have reported on the fact that Minneapolis is now murderopolis. And the disparities on the basis, when you look at it from a racial lens in her district, are some of the greatest in the country on all manner of measures in terms of economics and quality of life and crime and beyond. Of course, this is what happens with progressivism. The intentions never match the outcomes, and the outcomes are always the worst for the very constituents progressives claim to care about the most. And sometimes you have to wonder, who are their constituents? Who is Ilhan Omar's constituent when she goes out and compares America to jihadists or Israel to jihadists, the great Satan and the little Satan? Who is she speaking for? And why the hell represent this country if you hate it so much? The importance of the Democratic Party's cave to Omar and the squad is that it shows directionally that that's where the party is going or, again, where it is. And as I chronicle in the book, you look at how big the progressive caucus is in the House and how much, how rapidly that has expanded since it started in the early 90s. And we're talking, I believe, over 100 measures, 100 members collectively. Out of 535. 435, rather. Significant. Hugely Significant. And particularly of a majority, you're talking almost half of a majority, a Democrat majority. When the party initially caved to her over her anti-Semitic remarks and basically diluted those remarks by saying, actually, we're going to have a resolution that goes against any speech perceived as hateful by any of our demographics that we care about, essentially, is what they said. They showed they didn't care about purging the party of people with views like Ilhan Omar. And there's a cynical political reason for it. I mean, first is the fact that the party, of course, has just gone way more woke and it's happened over decades and it's accelerated at a ridiculous rate in recent years, which is why you have someone like Joe Biden reading from a teleprompter about equity over equality. It's also a cynical political play. There's a view that the future of the party and particularly younger voters and then also Muslim Americans who disproportionately swing left and likely disproportionately have views that are in line with their progressives, and polling seems to indicate this, are going to be a growing cohort. And in particular, when it comes to issues like regarding Israel or like regarding terrorism and beyond, the Democratic Party is willing to say basically, to hell with traditional Jewish Democrat voters, pro-American, pro-Israel, belief that Israel is in America's national interest to be an ally of, and of course, hates, loathes anti-Semites. That it's actually okay to kowtow in effect to the anti-Semites and to those who take a sympathetic view towards Islamists around the world because that's where the votes are going to be down the road. That's the unspoken, cynical, political aspect of all of this and why the party continues to cave. The party sees where its future lies. They see the ideological trend lines. They see where the votes are going to be. And that is why Ilhan Omar must be protected. And you have to... It's really important to note the verbal tick that she has any time she is criticized and how she uses identity politics as a cudgel and as a shield. 
Literally, I believe the day after my book come out, she put out a funding email or her campaign put out a fundraising email talking about how Islamophobic right wing extremists are coming out against her and that they may incite violence. My book, by the way, has hundreds and hundreds of footnotes and citations. It's as thoroughly researched as it could be because it had to be bulletproof to deal with someone, a figure like Ilhan Omar, to talk about her wretched ideology, her criminal, it seems, personal acts that go well beyond what we're talking about in terms of her dalliances with the adversaries of America. And of course, she attacks you as a bigot if you speak openly and honestly about it. And so do all of her progressive allies as well. What is that about at the end of the day? It's about the fact, once again, like our entire benighted ruling class, that they cannot tolerate dissent. No one can dissent from their ideology, from their agenda. And you must be destroyed if you dare speak out against them. And you better have thin skin as a consequence, thick skin in response to it. Their entire game is to try and smear and silence you into submission. And when that doesn't work, they use the full powers of the public and private sectors against you. As we'll talk about a little bit later in the program today. And as we talked about with respect to January 6th yesterday. It's obvious now for all to see. And it was obvious to me when I wrote this book, American Ingrate. And it came out about over a year ago now in February of last year, right before the onset of the pandemic. That wokeism was the was the present, if not and future, of the party, and that's where we are today. That's where we are today. When you have these establishmentarians par excellence kowtowing to people who should be marginal fringe figures, people they should not want to be promoting, because broadly America rejects squad like figures, and we saw that in 2020. So I guess you can say it's good that the Democratic Party continues caving to the squad wing politically, maybe in the near term, but long term. We are in major, major trouble, and I, as I argue in the book, if the party representing half the country acquiesces to these views, these anti-American, regressive views that, again, hurt most those who can least tolerate it, that punish the middle class, the lower class in the country, and prevent everyone from ever achieving the American dream, the aspirations that we all seek, and protecting and preserving the American way of life. This is Ben Weingarten for Buck Sexton on The Buck Sexton Show. Back right after this. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. And one of the running themes of this week is how wokeness is increasingly pervading every aspect of, of our society. And effectively, every single domain is part of an ideological war that one side has been waging really for decades. And the other side, namely our side, the side of patriotic and traditional Americans, has ceded that battlefield or not even understood the depths of the battle and the stakes of it. But now when you see cancel culture, not just in the digital sphere, but in people's places of work, in the schools, obviously, how the metastasizing cancer of CRT is hopefully now being rooted out, but through every aspect of our life that you can't escape the hyper-politicization of the woke, there needs to be a response to it. And one person who's been thinking about both the stakes and also how to respond to these challenges is Nate Fisher. Nate wrote a great article at The American Mind, uh, which is a project of the Claremont Institute. And I'll disclose again that I do some work on behalf of Claremont and have written for The American Mind as well. He wrote a piece about a week ago, Politics is Interested 
in you. And it's worth noting that Nate has a background as an entrepreneur and an investor. He's launching this project called New Founding, which he co-founded, that touches on both business and politics and really how to respond to the woke anti-cultural revolution in your life, in your community and beyond. And Nate joins us now. Thanks so much for coming on the program. Thanks, Ben, for having me. So one of the things you wrote in this piece, and I think it perfectly captures where we are, is that our society has morphed away from anything recognizable even 10 years ago. For many, politics was always something away from home, away from daily life. It was somewhere else, often relevant mostly to small things like marginal differences in a tax bill. Not anymore. A corrosive trend has developed as some become increasingly political and demanding. The cost for others of expressing an opinion or even ignoring the wrong activist demand has grown intolerably high. And you go on to talk about the intimidation that many are facing in this country, the chilling and the silencing that's going on in this country. Why does the left believe that it has to dominate in every single sphere, well beyond politics, right down to the culture, your workplace, your school and beyond? So I think it flows uh, inevitably from their ideology. This is not a uh, this is not a liberal movement that simply wants to uh, improve improve people's lives. Uh, maybe uh, maybe even wants universal health care because they care about people. This is a movement that is fundamentally revolutionary, and uh, they see every one of these structures as inherently oppressive. They uh, they really want to reshape. Uh, they want to reshape our understanding of, of what it even means to be a human, I would say. Uh, and that requires attacking every norm and structure that has been uh, created by humans, that has been created by culture, that has shaped our culture. So you're going to see this across society. You're going to see this in, uh, in actions from work to uh, basic community it's uh, and it's not going to stop. There's going to be no end to it because it's a revolutionary agenda. Yeah, and I think it's worth noting that the kind of anti-racist tip of the edge of the the woke anti-cultural revolution over the last year, so-called anti-racism, because it's really racist in practice, really, I think, describes well, in part, why you have to be woke or you're going to be shunted out of civil society today. And that's because to be an anti-racist, according to Ibram X. Kendi, sort of the godfather of anti-racism today, if you are not actively engaging in anti-racist causes and policies, you are definitionally being a racist at a given time. So thus, you can't just be neutral. You can't just stand on the sideline. If the other side says you're a bigot, if you're not going along with the woke agenda, then that means that you basically have to be engaged just at a micro level tactically how do you explain this to friends neighbors colleagues who are good natured but haven't studied herbert marcuse and critical race theory and all of the political philosophy and theory behind all this how do you get them woke to what wokeism is really about so i think it's a challenge it's hard to explain uh there's people who are closely following it and they see the they see the writing on the wall they see the trends but for most people, I think it's uh, it, it'll be a story that hits home. It'll be and it, it's hard to know what story that will be. But there's there's enough stories coming out of some incredibly cruel response to someone, uh, some just uh, something that many people probably assumed would stop the pendulum and swim and swing in the other direction. And it never stopped. It went further, whether it's uh whether it's the extreme pushing of a sexual agenda on children in many cases, or it's the, uh, 
or, or it's the not just firing, but uh, mob really ritual sacrifice of someone uh, for some what, what seems to be a fairly trivial offense or something that wouldn't even be considered a uh, offense a few years ago. So I, I think for many people, it, it's it's something that they've begun to recognize in private. They see the problem. The real challenge, I think, for the, as you say, good natured people is the right has traditionally shied away from thinking of politics in terms of conflict. Uh, we've we, we've thought, uh, thought of it in terms of principles. It's one that is really glorified principles and ideals, whether they be the Constitution or, or universal uh, views of right. And uh, so I try to shift the framework a little bit at times uh, to a domain where people recognize that conflict is, is, exists and is actually uh, good to engage in. And that's the domain of national defense. I mean, no one doubts that when a foreign power threatens our well-being and fundamentally threatens our country, it's actually good and honorable and actually an obligation to stand up and uh, and challenge them. And that involves things that go beyond just appealing to principles, that, that, that go beyond just talking about niceness and decency and a return to the past, but really go to fighting uh, fighting a conflict and doing what it takes to uh, push back against people who threaten our way of life. And I think that a lot of people recognize intuitively that that is a domain that calls for that. And what they don't realize yet is uh, the same principle applies at home. So uh, if there are people who are going to threaten our way of life as fundamentally as, uh, as they see in these anecdotes, it demands a different mindset, a mindset that, uh, that is familiar, but is not familiar when applied to politics. Uh, a, a mindset of conflict. And my title alludes to this. It's, uh, it alludes to a quote by Trotsky, uh, who said, you may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. And that's a, uh, that's been a unfortunate fact of life for many people in many societies throughout history. And uh, whether you like it or not, it's, uh, it's pushed on people. Yeah, and I think it's worth noting a couple points. Obviously, principles and ideals and values are vital in terms of having a vision for a nation, uh, for one's family, for one's community and beyond. But translating those principles, ideals and values into practice requires understanding the playing field and the battlefield, ideological or otherwise, as it really is. And I think it, it's very clear that it is not a conservative value, principle, or ideal to lose to a totalitarian onslaught. You have to see it for what it is, and you have to respond based on the size, scope, and nature of the threat that we face. And also to your point about uh, foreign adversaries and how that kind of makes it concrete and intelligible uh, to anyone who cares about this country and their children and their future in this place is that look, look at our adversaries, how they adopt the same narratives, or in some cases they promulgate the narratives and our own leftists pick them up. In the Chinese Communist Party, when their senior officials meet with their counterparts like Secretary Blinken or National Security Advisor Sullivan, and they essentially espouse the 1619 Project view of America, the critical race theory view of America, of oppressor and oppressed, but it's on the basis of race, what I would describe as a racial Marxism, it's very clear they love this. This is a propaganda coup for them. So in some sense, they're either dupes and useful idiots or worse of our worst adversaries, or on the other hand, 
our worst adversaries are just glomming on to the same kind of narratives being put out by those adversaries for really decades. And it's really remarkable to see it at the commanding heights of society speaking in the same tongue as basically Xi Jinping apparatchiks. So we've got a couple minutes before we have to take a break. Before we get there, I just want to know from your perspective, what are the stakes if the woke onslaught continues unabated? What will this country look like in 5, 10, 15 years, or maybe sooner based upon how quickly it swept the land? So I think it's it, it's very hard to predict timeline, and I I tend to uh, look not at timeline, which I think has enormous uncertainty, but trajectory and intent. And as I said, it's a revolutionary movement. It is one that that seeks to abolish the nuclear family. Uh, the original uh, website of the Black Lives Matter organization uh, seeks to eliminate the heteronormative family, and uh, many talk about eliminating a normative society. I don't even know what that looks like. I think that it's inconceivable to imagine a society where it is not uh, normal for uh, for people to live uh, according to the uh, sex they were born with. And uh, so when you look at when you look at goals like that, you have to just uh, it's really only your imagination, I think, can imagine where that might go. It's an unachievable goal, which means uh, probably just continual turmoil and revolution, but certainly it means uh, the elimination of any ability to have uh, control, even within your own family of what your kids are taught, uh, any ability to go to work uh, in anything less than uh, a environment that demands total conformity, total acquiescence, a willingness to uh, make what are effectively genuflections to a, a set of increasingly uh, intrusive religious demands, uh, and it, it will come to encompass every aspect of your life. Uh, it, it's very hard to imagine what that looks like, but it will take away your freedom to dissent in any context. I know even in Scotland, I think there was talk of a hate crimes bill that could make certain conversations illegal, even in your own home. So you could have, uh, family members or guests reporting on you to uh, to the police, which I think is something that's probably a familiar uh, pattern to people from Eastern Europe under communism, but not something that many of us can even imagine what that feels like. This is just another example writ large of the convergence that we see today between our Chinese Communist Party supporting and kowtowing elites and how that manifests itself in us mimicking them. It's, it's socialism or you know Chinese socialism with American characteristics essentially here. We'll have more with Nate Fisher after a quick break. We've been talking with Nate Fisher about his article at The American Mind, which I urge you to check out. Politics is interested in you and talking about sort of how wokeism is manifesting itself in all of our institutions. You see it in corporations, any major large publicly traded company has sort of conceded already to the cult of diversity, equity, and inclusion, which is really none of those things. It's about imposing an ideology on workers and essentially, uh, in some in some respects, brainwashing them or bludgeoning them into submission to what is a leftist ideological agenda, which, by the way, is going to destroy morale in many of these companies. That's going to have business consequences for them. And I think that's a, that's a good place to start before we get to what is to be done, given the size, scope, and nature of the problems we face. So from your perspective, Nate, as someone who has experience in the entrepreneurial world and the investing world as well, 
to what extent do you believe the executives at these major companies are really true believers in this agenda or are they cynical and think they can essentially feed the crocodile so it won't eat them at the end of the day, regardless of what it means for their bottom line when it comes to the woke onslaught in terms of the millions and in some cases, I think in the aggregate, maybe billions of dollars that effectively go towards wokeism, either in terms of these movements themselves, like Black Lives Matter uh, and the, at the aggregate level uh, or other related causes. So I think it varies widely. And I think we really have we have multiple classes of people running uh, companies. There's there's entrepreneurial founders and there's a lot of entrepreneurial founders who I know don't believe this. It's widely uh, it's widely discussed. And in private, they recognize the damage that wokeness can do to their morale. They're, uh, they're terrified of mobs blowing up at them. And they really do hope, uh, and that's really the group that this is, this is aimed at, is people who, who recognize that this is a problem, but kind of hope they can keep their head down and they can make a few token gestures, they can feed the beast, and they can pay them off, uh, and uh, it'll pass them by. And uh, that's a that's a group that needs to wake up. They need to recognize that the demands are they can't just give uh, twenty thousand dollars to a uh, a local BLM organization and uh, buy themselves a few years of peace. Uh, at this point, it's entered uh, it's entered their workforce in such a way that if they don't actively uh, if they really don't actively look out to resist it, it will uh, it will encompass their org. I would say there's other groups. A lot of major corporations are effectively run by careerists. They're run by, by MBAs who are probably better at climbing the corporate ladder than anything else. I think those people, many in many cases, are, are to the extent they're true believers in anything, they believe in the system that, uh, that promotes this. And it's a system that fundamentally rewards careerists and bureaucrats. It, it's one where uh, it, it's one that you regularly see replacing uh, entrepreneurial founders who don't quite uh, toe the party line well enough with uh, woke technocrats. And uh, those people uh, not only believe this, they stand to gain from it, and they have, uh, they have a real incentive to continue this system. So I, I think one counterexample is great, which is Elon Musk, uh, who's a founder who is trying to do something hard enough that I think he recognizes, uh, he recognizes the impossibility of, of feeding the beast. If he if he tries to compromise with them at all, he will never make it to Mars. And I think he knows that. And uh, that's why you see him uh, resist this, whereas a lot of founders, uh, especially building social networks and things, are uh, they're trying something that's not quite as hard. And, and I think there's a perception that you can kind of play along with it. And the only problem with Elon Musk, and it's for another day, is uh, how China may effectively own Tesla at the end of his travails with them, uh, which shows you that you you can never buy off any of these uh, woke protection rackets or, or mobs, in effect. Uh, you have to stand, ultimately, for the country and for freedom. But setting all that aside, in, in just a minute and a half or so, tell us about new founding, which I gather is a response to everything that we're talking about. So new founding is built on the recognition that you need to uh, you need a holistic response. It's not something that can be just done at the margins. Uh, we need a space, really a domain, to be freed from this. They can free you up to be more human. Uh, new founding is, uh, as we describe it, is a cultural and commercial syndicate that really brings together people from business, technology, politics, and media. Uh, we're building a number of uh, projects, uh, one of which is a newsletter. You can go to newfounding.com and subscribe to a newsletter. 
that will, that will give you updates and it'll point you to products and uh, businesses that are either aligned with your values or at least are refusing to bow to the woke not mob and begin pouring uh, consumer dollars into a pocket of the economy that will, uh, will hopefully be the seed of something much bigger. We're working on a hiring website and directory so you can uh, work with and do business with people who, again, are, uh, are willing to resist this. And finally, we're working on a number of media projects, including a lifestyle publication that talks about how to live in the digital age in a way that is uh, going to allow you to really maintain your humanity in the face of especially a big tech establishment that is increasingly enforcing this agenda on you. So it's, uh, and there'll be many, many more projects that flow to that. We'll be working with, with many more companies. So really the goal is to bring together a number of different people in a number of different domains to uh, point toward and build the seeds of something uh, better and more human and ultimately uh, far more effective and competitive. We've been speaking with Nate Fisher, co-founder of New Founding. Nate, thanks so much for coming on the program. Appreciate the work that you're doing. And it's so imperative that we go on offense and not just be defensive and look look askance at history uh, yelling stop. We can actually do something about it. So appreciate all your efforts there. Thanks, Ben. And I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. And we were just having a conversation with Nate Fisher about the size, scope, and nature of the wokest threat to the American way of life. And obviously, the topic front and center, I think for huge swaths of the country at this point, is what has transpired in our schools. And there's been some amazing reporting even separate and apart from critical race theory, but almost in terms of the response to it, including among those who have lived under real cultural revolutions like those in communist China or North Korea recently, that have just been remarkable in terms of their takes on what they're seeing in this country. And it's a sad fact, but those who have lived under tyranny, who get out of tyranny and come here, seem to have a more keen sort of spidey sense as to what is going on when it appears that a cultural revolution has come to this country. They've seen it. They've seen what happens when a society crumbles under tyranny. And they are the canaries in the coal mine for us. And many of us have never lived under anything like it. And so we take for granted that what came before will follow in the future again. So a couple remarkable pieces worth noting, and this comes in context, by the way, of a school district in New Jersey. And And I mentioned before, I was raised in the New Jersey suburbs, not too far from this school district, and I moved back to New Jersey recently over the last year and know this place well, Randolph, New Jersey, and there's been this huge outrage over the fact that the Randolph Board of Education is removing the days from holidays from the school calendar altogether following an earlier debate about how to refer to Columbus Day, of course, as Indigenous People's Day or whatever day they want to call it, whatever the woke demand. Randolph looks like, and I know because I spent some time there, a typical suburban town in America. So the fact that a school board there went so woke as to not only try to rename Columbus Day, But then to say, you know what, we got to get rid of all holiday names, period, shows you how deep down to the very fabric of society at our local schools, the woke cultural rot goes. 
The fact that there's been a massive outpouring at the time of this latest article on it from a New Jersey news source, it says there are 2,500 people who have signed a petition calling for the Board of Education to resign. It shows you that there is there is a maybe silent majority that's finally becoming outspoken in this country, rising up against this asinine revolution that we've seen. And this is an anti-cultural revolution almost definitionally when you're talking about removing holiday names altogether. It's not just toppling statues. It's not just renaming holidays. It's ultimately destroying whole segments of society. And that's where we are today. So in terms of you know how long is it going to take and where is it going to end up, a question that we addressed in that last interview with Nate Fisher, we're there in a lot of respects. And I think we should be thankful that there are people who have come to America for freedom who are speaking out about what they see and raising clarion calls against this absurd anti-cultural revolution. So here was one that caught my eye. And this is an article that was in Fox News titled, North Korean Defector Says Even North Korea Was Not This Nuts After Attending Ivy League School. And the school in question is Columbia University. And I should say I'm an alum of Columbia University. At the time I was there, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, you may remember, the Iranian leader, came to campus and was given a platform to speak. So you can only imagine that was like a decade ago. So where, where is it today? And this is one of the few remaining institutions in the country of higher education that still reads the classic books, Greek, Latin and beyond, still reads the core texts. Every student at Columbia University or Columbia College and beyond has to read these core texts of Western civilization because they're still understood to be the building blocks of our society. So someone going to an institution like that comes out with this view. Yamni Park is her name. She says, I expected that I was paying this fortune all this time and energy to learn how to think, but they're forcing you to think the way they want you to think. I realized, wow, this is insane. I thought America was different, but I saw so many similarities to what I saw in North Korea that I started worrying. This is a North Korean defector who settled in the United States, transferred to Columbia from a South Korean university in 2016. The article goes on, the similarities that she sees include anti-Western sentiment, collective guilt, and suffocating political correctness. Yamni saw red flags immediately upon arriving at the school. During orientation, she was scolded by a university staff member for admitting she enjoyed classic literature such as Jane Austen. I said, I love those books. I thought it was a good thing, recalled Park. Then she said, did you know those writers had a colonial mindset? They were racist and bigots and are subconsciously brainwashing you. The article goes on. It only got worse from there as Yamni realized that every one of her classes at the Ivy League school was infected with what she saw as anti-American propaganda, reminiscent to the sort she had grown up with. American bastard was one word for North Koreans, Park was taught growing up. The math problems would say there are four American bastards. You kill two of them. How many American bastards are left to kill? How progressive. She was also shocked and confused by issues surrounding gender and language, with every class asking students to announce their preferred pronouns. And this is the cult of diversity, equity, and inclusion that I'm talking about that's in every single institution. English is my third language. I learned it as an adult. I sometimes still say he or she by mistake, and now they're going to call, call, ask me to call them they? How the heck do I incorporate that into my sentences? It was chaos, said Yamni. It felt like the regression in civilization. Even North Korea is not this nuts. North Korea was pretty crazy, but not this crazy. It's a direct quote. 
She goes on to say, these kids keep saying how they're oppressed, how much injustice they've experienced. They don't know how hard it is to be free. I literally crossed through the middle of the Gobi Desert to be free. But what I did was nothing. So many people fought harder than me and didn't make it. She published a memoir, In Order to Live, where she described what it took to survive under one of the world's most brutal dictatorships. She goes on to say, in North Korea, I literally believed that my dear leader, Kim Jong-un, was starving. He's the fattest guy. How can anyone believe that? And then somebody showed me a photo and said, look at him. He's the fattest guy. Other people are all thin. And I was like, oh, my God, why did I not notice that he was fat? Because I never learned how to think critically. This is what that is what is happening in America. She continued. People see things, but they've just completely lost the ability to think critically. North Koreans don't have the internet. We don't have access to any of these great thinkers. We don't know anything. But here, while having everything, people chose to be brainwashed and they deny it. You guys have lost common sense to a degree that I as a North Korean cannot even comprehend. And it goes on from there. She's not the only defector. There was a Virginia mom recently, someone who endured Mao Zedong's cultural revolution before immigrating to the U.S., her name is Shi Van Fleet, and she told the Loudoun County school board members in Virginia, you are now training, teaching, training our children to be social justice warriors and to loathe our country and our history. She likened CRT, according to this article, which critics deride as a form of neo-racism, to China's cultural revolution. She said in part, and I believe this was during an open hearing, one of the teachers was considered bourgeoisie because she liked to wear pretty clothes, Van Fleet said, so the students attacked her and spit on her. She was covered with spit, and pretty soon it became violence. This is her describing her time during the Cultural Revolution as a student. To me and a lot of Chinese, it's heartbreaking that we escaped communism, and now we experience communism here. Direct quote. Everything that was considered old, feudalist, avaz, Buddhas, everything was taken out and smashed, she said. Isn't that exactly what we're doing here in American society today? We were asked to report if we hear anything about someone saying anything showing that there's a lack of complete loyalty to Mao. There were people reporting their parents, and their parents ended up in jail. She's going, she quotes, she's quoted, I felt like it's such a free country, meaning I have free access to all sorts of information, books on both sides of the issue in America. I can't really just say what I mean now, even though the other side can say whatever. To me and to a lot of Chinese, it's heartbreaking that we escaped communism, and now we experience communism here. There, in China, we were taught to denounce our heritage, and Red Guards destroyed anything that is not communist. Again, statues, books, and anything else. We were also encouraged, again, to report on each other. This is indeed the American version of the Chinese Cultural Revolution. The critical race theory has its roots in cultural Marxism. She goes on to say, I just want Americans to know that their privilege is to be here living in America. That is just the biggest privilege. I do not think a lot of people understand. They're thinking they're doing the right thing. Be against racism sounds really good, but they're basically breaking the system that is against racism. And these are not the only folks. I mean, there, there are a litany of others as well. I referenced yesterday an article in City Journal which was talking about the fight in New York City over standardized testing and the attempt to abolish standardized testing as a measure for students to get in on the basis of a metric in large part of their aptitude, a measure of their aptitude, to go to elite public schools, selective public schools in this area, which have been a way out of poverty and misery for thousands of people historically on the basis of what they bring to the table, their individual accomplishment, achievement, their intellect. This talks to another person in this article, Donggi Zhang, one of the parents who is opposed to this effort to purge these schools of standardized testing. 
It says, when he took a few hours off from work as a data analyst on Wall Street to join the June 2018 protest outside City Hall, he didn't think he was embarking on a political journey. In fact, he had vowed to stay away from politics after participating in the Tiananmen Square protests of 1989. The father of two hadn't attended a protest since coming to the U.S. in 1995 to pursue a Ph.D. He didn't know who the New York governor was or what the council did. He was born in a small village in 1969, seven years before the death in China, of then-chairman Mao Zedong. Mao was no fan of exams. During the chaos of the Cultural Revolution, college entrance exams were largely halted. Admissions were based on recommendations from the people, and students who could barely read and write were sent to college. That exceptional period aside, however, exams administered by the highest level of government have existed for more than 1,400 years in China. It's how they compete in spite of their communism. And he goes on to talk about what it was like in China, and he says... Equality should be about equal opportunities, not equal outcomes. The plans for school diversity in New York, which is the supposed driving force behind getting rid of these standards in terms of standardized testing, all focus on the outcome. They sound too much like Mao's policies to me. This article goes on to quote other parents as well, talking about this sort of Maoist, really insurrection overtaking of our schools. And one of those quotes is as follows from the president of a group who's opposed to these anti-meritocratic proposals. Says, and this is with respect to critical race theory, China's Mao used to call the tools he adopted to push forward his communist agenda the three flags. I think the CRT sounds like one of the communist red flags. And there's also a quote talking about how they viewed CRT as a hateful fraud and a common source of anti-Asian racism. So one last quote from this piece from Mr. Zhang. The Cultural Revolution in China suddenly ended in 1976 and the college entrance exams resumed in 1977. A lot of historic trends that seem perpetual are like this. When the turning point arrives, you need to be prepared. Take a quick break and we'll finish up here on the Buck Sexton Show. Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. Yesterday we touched on January 6th and how it's being used, leveraged to impose a coming war on domestic violent extremism. And today the Biden administration put out a domestic terror strategy. And I'm sure before the week is out, we'll be able to go in depth on this. But I think it's worth noting from their tear sheet, sort of the high level points. First of all, they say domestic terrorism The most lethal elements of today's domestic terrorism threat are one, racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists who advocate for the superiority of the white race, and two, anti-government or anti-authority violent extremists such as militia violent extremists. They never define who these groups are. They never define what ideas qualify as the kind of ideas harbored by these domestic violent extremists. They never quantify and qualify how big this threat is, but it could likely mean you because they don't define it. Goes on to say, U.S. government will augment its efforts to address online terrorist recruitment and mobilization of violence by domestic terrorists through increased information sharing with the technology sector and the creation of innovative ways to foster digital literacy and build resilience to recruitment and mobilization. What do you, does that give you any confidence that basically the government's going to be working hand in hand with big tech to pursue whoever they perceive the threat to be in this country? Again, protecting our life and limb is the most important task of our government in general and our commander-in-chief in particular. But what happens when it's weaponized against innocent American people, wrong-thinking American people? 
And as we know, it appears, based on Julie Kelly's reporting, that there are people essentially being held political prisoners for their views on what transpired in the 2020 election. So should you have any confidence? Should you have any confidence in a system protecting our most cherished liberties and justice when it's been weaponized so many times over the last four plus years against former President Trump and every single person in his orbit? And tomorrow we're going to talk to Ron Johnson, Senator Ron Johnson from Wisconsin on this program. He's been targeted mercilessly and caught a Russian agent for daring to take a different position with respect to whatever the conventional narrative is on issues from Hunter Biden and Russian collusion and Ukrainian collusion to beyond. And of course, on taking an unpopular position with respect to vaccine in the eyes of our betters gets booted off by big tech. Tearsheet goes on to talk about U.S. government improving employee screening to enhance methods for identifying domestic terrorists who might pose insider threats. DOD, DOJ, and DHS are similarly pursuing efforts to ensure domestic terrorists are not employed within our military or law enforcement ranks and improve screening and vetting processes. Okay, we know that those processes now seem to describe as potential domestic violent extremists conservatives serving in the armed forces. And it goes on to say, every component of government has a role to play in rooting out racism and bigotry and advancing equity, not equality. For all Americans. We'll delve into the details of this later in the week, but they are setting up such a wide open standard, such a liberal lax standard that you can have no confidence in people who view you as their enemy, essentially, to actually go about this in a judicious fashion or to even be able to substantiate their claims justifying this whole massive, pervasive government wide effort. Our liberties and justice are at stake, it's all on the table. Right now. And that's why we're touching all the third rails they don't want to talk about during this week, because we need to speak openly and honestly and courageously without fear in the face of this totalitarian onslaught. As I mentioned, tomorrow we've got a great program lined up. We'll have not only Senator Ron Johnson, but another figure that the ruling class loves to try and cancel who touches all sorts of third rails on the merits. Charles Murray as well. I hope you'll tune in for that. This has been Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on the Buck Sexton Show. I want to thank Buck for the opportunity, and I want to thank you for listening during this entire week. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. God bless you. God bless America.